who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. You are listening to episode 13 of Half Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 22, Dunsany Road's Orbital, 2352, April 18. The Dunsany Road's flea market was something else again. The influence of the cotton and flax fields below was instantly apparent. Lightweight fabrics were everywhere. Several booths featured yarns and cordage of both flax and cotton fibers. There were bolts of fabric in both solids and various weaves, including checks and stripes. What are we looking for? Brill asked. Normal stuff. Low mass, high value. Pip said there was a small silk industry here in addition to the cotton and flax. Silk scarves, ties, she suggested. Yeah, those would be good, I think, I told her. We wandered through the maze of booths for over a stand before we came to the ship's booth. Roan Sham was managing. She grinned when she saw us coming. Hey, Roan, Brill said. How's business? We're down to the end here, she said. I don't think we'll open tomorrow unless somebody comes out of the woodwork on the ship. Sean and Tabitha were up here earlier selling the last of the shawls and afghans. The shawls went very well, and Sean seemed real pleased. He paid his cap, she added with a smile. We've had several people up here today, selling like crazy. I thought of the stones in Pip's locker and wondered if they'd sell on Betris. They weren't worth opening the booth for. Roan turned to me and asked, You shopping for Betris? Yeah, I grinned. I spend all my money on clothes, and I need to start earning it back. She looked me up and down, frankly. Turn around so I can see the back. I turned obediently, and when I turned back, Roan was looking a bit flushed and fanning herself with a huge grin. "'Enjoying yourself?' I asked archly. "'Oh, yeah,' she said. "'Trust me, it was worth every penny you spent.' I chuckled. "'Thanks, Roan, but I still need to make some of the cash back.' We waved and headed off down the aisle. After we'd gone about four meters, I looked up at Brill and said, "'She's looking, isn't she?' Yup, she said with a grin. "'You can't blame a girl for looking-ish. "'I'm still trying to get used to being the one looked at.' You're bearing up under the strain remarkably well, she told me with a grin. I just laughed. No, she said, trust me, I have experience, she added with a grin. We wandered along for a few more aisles. This is so frustrating, I said. What's that, she asked. It's all the same stuff. I've seen this stuff in four systems now. Yeah, she agreed. But remember, the first trip you made to the flea, all the stuff was there too, but it was the first time you'd seen it, so it was new. I did remember my first flea market. 
boy toy, I said. Boy toy? Yeah, the first flea market was with Beverly back in Gugara, I said. That's where we found Druce Martin in the belts. I think I got spoiled by the success of that, and I keep looking for the next Druce Martin. What's that got to do with boy toy, she asked. Bev did the dickering with Druce. I smiled at the memory of it. They dickered back and forth and pretty quickly came up with a prize. In the end, Druce told Bev, Your boy toy can have the same deal if he wants. So we both bought the first of the belts. <laughs> That's priceless, Brill laughed. I thought it was terribly embarrassing at the time, I told her, but the story gets better. What's better than that, she asked. Well, Pip went back the next day and bought a big bundle of belts. He got a great price, in part because Druce remembered us from the previous day as a tough femme with leathers and an attitude and a skinny boy toy, I told her. As Pip was picking out the belts, Druce was working on her bench, and by the time Pip had his bundle and they'd done the deal, Druce handed him a belt and asked him to give it to me. It had the words boy toy worked into the pattern. You're kidding me, she said. So I turned around and lifted the hem of my jacket to expose the belt. Behind me I heard Bev giggle and two other women make appreciative little oh my sounds. That wasn't the smartest move I ever made, was it? I said, without turning around. A strange woman's voice answered, oh, I don't know, I kind of liked it. I turned to find Brill stifling laughter behind her hand and standing beside a couple of smiling gray-haired women. One turned to the other and, with a wink at Brill, said, I didn't know this flea market had a floor show, Mary. We'll have to come more often, the other one said. Thanks, I told him, but I bit back the you've been a wonderful audience. I couldn't do that part just yet. They smiled at Brill, and the one apparently named Mary said, He's a keeper, dearie. She nodded. Oh, I know, she answered. I'm just trying to figure out what to keep him in. The not-merry one just patted her on the arm and said, Your heart, dear, your heart. They were still chuckling as they wandered off. Well, you certainly made their day, Brill said after a bit. Only fair, I replied. Yeah, she said quietly. We kept moving, following in the wake of the two ladies. Three booths later, we found the batik merchant. Brill spotted it first, of course, over the heads of the crowd. His booth was draped with the most spectacular colored cloth. Bold patterns and rich colors dominated this selection. There were several variations on a bamboo theme and dozens of others. Each piece was a work of art. The vendor was a pot-bellied man with long gray streak hair down his back, wearing a tie-dyed linen shirt, simple black trousers, and the first pair of sandals I'd seen since I'd left Naris. He introduced himself as Chuck. We stepped into the booth and Chuck grinned, first at Brill, then at me. You two look like individuals of exceptional breeding and taste, he exclaimed. Brill burst out laughing. Does that line work, she asked. No, he said with a twinkle in his eye, but the laugh usually does. How can I help you? Tell me about this fabric, she said. Batik, he said. Ancient form of dyeing. You put wax on the raw cloth and the patterns that you want, and then you dye the cloth. The dye soaks into the fabric where the wax isn't. Repeat the process for each color you want to use. These, he indicated the panels of fabric around him, are the result. Can I take a few digitals of your booth? I asked the man. I think my partner would like to talk with you about buying a quantity of this work to take out of the system to sell. I'd like him to see it. Sure, mister, Chuck said. You want me in the picture or out of it? I pulled out my tablet and popped a couple snaps off to Pip while Brill was looking at the various panels. These aren't whole bolts of fabric, she noted. Correct, miss, Chuck said. I carve out bolts because it's a lot of work to wax, dye, wax, dye. Some days, he winked at her, I'm feeling lazy, so I only do little pieces like these. He pulled out a stack of pieces that were only about a half a meter square. I think the one over there is my biggest. He pointed to a large piece clipped to the drape at the back of his booth. It had to be two meters wide and four long. 
What do people use this material for? she asked. It seems a shame to cut it up for clothing. Oh, it depends, Chuck said, warming to his subject. Lots of people use the bigger pieces for drapes. The larger patterns and more pictorial pieces go for wall hangings. You mount a couple of them on a hinged wooden frame and it becomes a nice screen. Down below, these smaller pieces get made into throw pillows, he considered. Some of the smaller scale patterns actually work pretty well as skirts. There's some textile grade patterns, really small stuff, that are done in big bolts that could be used for shirts, even slacks. I don't do those. I'm too lazy, he said. Brill looked at me and I nodded. Between us, we bought about eight pieces in various shapes and patterns. We took one of Chuck's cards and I gave him Pip's name. When we left, I felt much better. Brill walked with something more like her old stride. It's going to be okay, she said suddenly as we walked away from Chuck's booth. I looked up at her and nodded. I think so, yeah. How'd you get so worldly, she asked me. My mother was a lit professor. She had the wisdom of the ages in the literature that was her professional career, and she kept trying it out in her life. Sometimes it worked, and sometimes it didn't, but she never backed down, and she taught me the same way. I shrugged. She didn't hide her pain from me, and she got hurt a lot. In spite of that, she never stopped living. She tried to teach me to see things as they are, not as I'd wish them to be, and that's probably the hardest thing to do. I haven't mastered it yet. Someday, maybe. The ping-ping-ping of the closing warning sounded across the flea market then, so Brill and I headed out with the crowd and didn't talk much all the way back to the docks. On the way back from the lift to the lock, she started chuckling. What's tickling your fancy this time, I asked. Al, she said. I wasn't joking, I told her. I know, she said, that's why I'm laughing. You find the notion funny, I asked. She shook her head. No, I used to be on the headley with her. I'm laughing because you're right. She's a fascinating woman, and you knew it within ticks of meeting her where most people dismiss her as a freak on sight. No woman with that much confidence could be anything but fascinating, I said. I think that's why you were so awesome the other day heading up to Henri's. I didn't tell you what he told me in the dressing room, did I? She shook her head. No, you've been holding out, you rat, she said with a grin. I've been rather busy the last couple of days, I told her. Cut me a little slack. And we both laughed at that. Tell me now before we get back. I was standing back there wearing just those little briefs. Thanks. I don't have enough problems. You had to leave me with that visual, she groaned. You want the story or not, I asked. Okay, okay, I'll be good, she said contritely. I savored the idea of just how good she might be for a heartbeat or two before continuing. Anyway, he's got me looking at myself in the mirror and he asked me who I think I am and I told him just a guy. You're not just a guy, she interrupted me. I laughed out loud. That's what he said, I told her. You're kidding, she laughed. I'm serious. He got this little pursed mouth thing going and said something like, Please, Monsieur Wong, you're walking here with not one but three of the most delightful and strikingly beautiful women on this end of the galaxy with an introduction from Bershaw himself. You are hardly just a guy, he said to me. He was just trying to suck up to you. <laughs> Why would Henri Roubaillet feel the need to suck up to me by complimenting the women in my entourage? Hey, who you call an entourage, buster? She joked. But you're right. He thought we were beautiful? No, he thought you were the most delightful and strikingly beautiful. That's at least two steps up, I said to her with a grin. Well, that put a little spring in my step. Thanks, Ish, she said. You're welcome. We were almost back to the lock when I asked. Well, since we're talking about being on Rees, would you tell me something? If I can, she said. Do you remember when I was doing up the buttons on my jeans? Oh, I think I'll remember that for a long, long time, she said, with a twinkle in her eyes.
I chuckled in spite of myself before continuing. That was the point where I noticed, finally, that I'd been through at least two changes of pants without the robe. I saw it just laying there in the chair, and I kind of froze for a sec. Oh, yes, I remember. I heard somebody from the couch make a little whimpering sound. She chuckled. Yeah, I remember that, too. Who was it? Henri's assistant, she said instantly. She was standing right behind the couch. I laughed loudly at that. Oh, God, that's funny. I thought it was either Bev or Diane. Brill shook her head. No, it couldn't have been any of us. No? Why? Why not, I asked, amused by her certainty. None of us could breathe, let alone whimper. We were laughing when we went back through the lock. Chapter 23, Dunsany Road's Orbital, 2352, April 18. Before I changed into my ship suit, I grabbed another quick shower to freshen up a bit. The night watch was likely to be long, and I was going into it tired. A stash of my towel and civvies in my locker and the bag of Welkies caught my eye, reminding me that I needed to get two more of them out. It was the work of the moment to pull the fox and the wolf that I'd spotted earlier and put them in the pocket of my suit. The chrono said 17.30, and I slipped across the passage to deck berthing. Bev was there, getting ready to go and watch herself. Hey, good to see you survived your first night on Liberty, she said with a grin. Taking a closer look at my face, she asked gently, you did survive. You know how it is, I told her, and shrugged. With a single quiet laugh, she said, oh yeah. She smiled then, you sure livened up what would have otherwise been just another boring evening. Somehow, I had a hard time imagining any evening that had Brill, Beverly, and Diane all in the same room as boring, and I laughed. I reached into my pocket and pulled out the wolf. I wanted you to have this. A little thank you for going to Henri's with me. Oh, I should be thanking you, she said, with a hoarse little catch in her voice. She took the small bundle and opened it. The wolf's eyes seemed to glint, even though they were only carved wood. She smiled when she saw it, and I thought her smile matched the expression on the carving in an eerie kind of way. Wow, she said, holding it up in front of her face. These are amazing, aren't they? I chuckled in the back of my throat. Not as amazing as the woman holding it, I said softly. She looked around the wolf she held in her hand and focused on my face. You're a pretty smooth talker, boy toy. There wasn't the usual teasing overtone in the way she said it this time, and it caught me in the pit of my stomach. She reached out and cupped a hand behind my neck and pulled my face towards hers. For an instant, I thought she was going to kiss me, but she tipped her head forward and bumped our foreheads together once gently before releasing me. Thank you, she said her breath a soft caress on my cheek before she withdrew. Now get your delightful little butt out of here. We've got to go on watch, she said with a laugh. I turned to leave, and she gave said butt a playful little spank as I left. It pleased me inordinately for some reason. Kind of friendly, almost. I went up to the mess deck for coffee before heading back down to environmental. Pip and Cookie were in the final stages of dinner buffet, so I just waved, took my coffee, and left. When I stepped through the hatch, Diane looked at the chrono and said, You're early. Yeah, I agreed. A couple of ticks, but I was ready and I wanted to see you anyway. Everything all right? She asked, with real concern in her voice. As well as can be expected under the circumstances, I told her. She gave a wan little smile and patted my arm in comfort. I still want to know what you said to Big B, she told me. Whatever it was, it seems to have worked. We had a good time up at the flea market, I said. That helped, too. But she was so miserable all morning here. So I gathered, I said. Do you know why? Well, she didn't say for sure, but I can guess, she said. Murdoch. Partly. She felt like an idiot for setting you up like that. How did you spot it? I heard you on the mess deck, and I kind of expected it after that day at Henri's, I told her. 
Even if I hadn't heard the name, I'd have known who the plumber was by the way you and Bev were acting. She looked a little embarrassed. I'm usually not that bad, but that person pulls my chain every time I think of her. It wasn't really about Murdoch, though, was it? She shook her head. No, it was that you went after Alvarez right after. Yeah, that's what I thought. I want to come back to that in a tick or two, but can I ask you about going up to Henri's? I asked. We haven't really talked about that afternoon much, and I need a little reality check. Sure-ish, she said. Ask me anything you want. <laughs> Don't tempt me with that one, I told her with a smile, and she laughed. Okay, did something happen that day, I asked her. What do you mean, happen, she asked. I'm going to tell you what I felt like, and you can tell me if I'm off base compared to how you saw it, okay? Well, that sounds fair. She said, go ahead. The four of us bonded in some really odd but really nice way. I don't know if it was the march up there, the march down, you guys watching me change clothes, or that I really liked having you watch me. Maybe it was I just felt so protected by the three of you. That would be okay if I were the only one who felt it, so with that big build-up, my question to you is, yes, she interrupted me. I did, and still do, and I don't know what or why or how, but we had something when we came down in the elevator that we did not have going up. She looked at me intently. Is that what you mean? Exactly. I didn't know I was lacking it, but now that I have it, I never want to lose it, and I don't even have a name for it, I told her. Yes! She almost shouted it. Well, that's what I told Brill, along with why I went for Alvarez. Oh, my, she said. You were grinning when you saw Alvarez leave me off the floor, I observed. Well, yes, she said I was. What were you thinking? I was thinking, you dog, and I was so happy for you. And you were a little sad, too, she shrugged. Life on the lowest demands some sacrifices, she said. She looked at me shyly, which was shock enough, but asked, You won't laugh. Well, I can't promise that, but I'll try not to laugh in the wrong place, I told her. That day we were changing out algae matrices, she said, letting the statement trail off suggestively. Oh, God, you're kidding, I told her. Nope, you look so damn cute. She sighed then and shrugged helplessly. Yeah, which is what you were telling me with the understand what it means to be a spacer stuff. Yeah, she said. Different ships have different cultures. It's odd. Gregor didn't like it here because of it. I've been on those ships before. There are some advantages, but I don't like being a bunk bunny. I chuckled. I can't picture you as a bunk bunny, I told her. Yeah, well, lots of men and no few women seem to think I'm attractive. I found it too distracting for comfort, she said, a little angrily. Saying no isn't easy on a ship like that. She said that looking off to the side in a kind of distaste, almost like she wanted to spit. She looked back at me then, so yeah, I was a little sad that I couldn't have you, but I was glad for you that you were leaving with Alvarez. She's something else. Okay, so why do you think I went after Alvarez, I asked. To show us you don't need us interfering in your love life. That's what Brill thought, too. It's not, she asked. Nope. What I told Brill was that if I couldn't have one of you three, that I wanted to get as close as I could get. There were only two other women in the bar that I was remotely interested in besides you guys. You think I'm in the same league as Brill and Bev? What, you think you're better? I teased her. No, you jerk, she said with a <laughs> smile. Brill has so damn much class it hurts me to look at her sometimes, and Bev has so much raw sensual confidence about her that I could go for her myself. You'd put me in the same group? I laughed. That's what Brill said about you two, but don't tell her I told you. She doesn't think she's in the same class as us? She asked unbelievably. Good God, she's what I'd like to be if I grow up. So that's why Alvarez. She's in the same class, but unlike you guys, she's not on the lowest. Wait, you think Bev and Brill and I are in the same class as Alvarez? Well, 
Not exactly, I told her with a grin, but she's a close second. <laughs> I can't believe you thought you'd pull it off, she told me. I didn't think I would, I said. But you won anyway. I shrugged. One in a million is a lot better odds than zero. God, you must have been out of your mind walking across the floor to her like that. What were you thinking? Don't laugh, I asked. No promises, she said with a little giggle. I have a feeling it's going to be funny. First, the worst she can say is no. And? I'm wearing Henri Roubaillet. She fought it valiantly. I had to give her credit. In the end, she lost it and dissolved into laughter. Yeah, yeah, big joke, I told her. But while you're laughing that cute little butt off, laugh about this. I paused for her to get her giggles under control a bit. It worked, I said with a grin. She started laughing again. I know she said, that's why I'm laughing. I love to hear her laugh, even if it was at me. Anyway, I came to relieve you and to give you this, I told her, and held out the small package. She opened it curiously, and when she saw it, I thought she might puddle up. It's beautiful, she breathed. Looking up at me, she asked, This is a Welkie, right? Yep, I got it on St. Cloud. When I was going through my things earlier, I saw that and thought of you, so I wanted you to have it. Thank you, she said with feeling. She held it up close to her face and stroked an index finger along its head and back, patting it in the way one might pat a real fox if one could pat a real fox. For heartbeat, I thought she might kiss it the way Alvarez had kissed a dolphin earlier in the day. Remembering that episode gave me a pang of a completely other sort that was centered somewhere lower in my torso, and I couldn't help but grin a little at the small jab of remembered pleasure. This reminds me of Brill's, she said, looking up. Yeah, Brill has a heron, I replied. They're from the same source. You gave it to her, she asked with a look on her face that said she knew the answer already. Yeah, funny story, but we saw this booth, but we didn't buy anything. Later, we both snuck back to it alone and bought Welkies. Over dinner afterwards, I reached out to give her the heron just as she was handing me the one she'd gotten me. You have one too, she asked. I reached into the pocket of my ship suit and pulled out the dolphin, holding it up so the section overheads glinted off the polished wood. The way the light slipped across it almost made it look like it was swimming. Oh, she said softly, it's lovely. Can I touch it, she asked. Sure, I told her. She reached out and stroked it a couple of times with just the tip of one finger along the back and the dorsal, in a gesture vaguely similar to the way Alvarez had. It's so smooth. The wood almost feels soft, she said dreamily. You know, Brill carries hers with her, too. Does she? I said. I knew she used to, but I didn't know she still did. I looked at the chrono then and saw 1744 click over to 1745. Are you ready to hand over the watch? Mr. Wong, all ops normal, she said. No maintenance was scheduled or performed. You have the watch. I relieve you, Ms. Ardell. I have the watch. She slipped her tablet into the holster and grabbed her coffee cup, still holding the walkie in her hand. As she slipped past me, she gave me a little peck on the cheek. Thank you for the fox. You're welcome. Sarah says they have to find their true owners. The fishermen along the south coast there think they're magical in some way, I said as I settled into the seat and scanned the readouts once quickly. She smiled at that. Maybe they are, she said. I shrugged. Maybe, I told her idly as I finished my scan through the various status readouts. Or maybe we just believe in the magic. Maybe we just let the icon represent the ideal which gives us a physical manifestation of an intangible. She laughed her bubbly laugh. I don't even know what you said, she giggled. I had to replay the sound of my own voice in my ears to remember, then I laughed too. Sorry, one of the themes that Mom was always talking about, how ideas are often represented by objects. She held up her fox and let the light strike it. What do you think these are representations of? Don't know, I said. 
maybe we apply a personal meaning to it, that the meanings you and I apply aren't the same as Sarah applies to hers. You gave Sarah one, she asked in surprise. No, she had one from her village shaman, a raven. The differences in style are obvious, but the representation is spectacular in its own way. She looked at me. You gave one to Bev, though, didn't you? She said. It was a statement more than a question. I grinned. Yeah, just now. What was hers, she asked. A wolf, I told her. She smiled. Yes, she said. Fitting. She headed back toward the hatch. Well, I'm off. I gotta grab some dinner and a nap before I head out. Hot date, I asked. Well, I can hope, she grinned wickedly. I can hope. Good hunting, I told her. Don't do anything I wouldn't do, I said inadvertently repeating the little catchphrase my mom and I shared when one of us had gone out. She laughed and stopped with her hand on the hatch. What wouldn't you do? The events of the previous day spooled out delightfully in my brain, and I laughed. Apparently not much, I told her. <laughs> Good for you, she said. She started out again, but stopped once more and asked, What did you give Alvarez? A falcon, I told her. She nodded. Good choice. With a final little wave, she slipped out of the hatch, and I settled down to review the logs and to check the maintenance schedule. Thanks for listening to episode 13 of Half Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is from the banks of Newfoundland, an Irish jig recorded in September of 1928 by Peter James Conlon and available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Dorandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For our website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.dorandis.com slash golden. Music